Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century and beyond. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me is my co-host, who reminds me of the babe, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? Andy, I am chilly down. That's that's what I am right now. <laughs> Not quite sure what it means, but that is me. I am chilly I mean, down. That's great. Uh, What movie are we doing today, Larry? Today we are doing one of my childhood favorite movies, Labyrinth, from 1986. Uh, And we have a special guest with us today, Andy. Uh, We have a returning guest star, yes. Our most returning guest star. Uh, We have Brett Neithamer, who has been in four previous episodes with us. He did Emperor's New Groove. He did 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Tron, The Dark Crystal. We basically have realized we're going to pick Brett for like the hardest movies that we do. The ones that are the most difficult to explain. Uh, I appreciate you giving me a challenge here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Each time. Uh, like, like, you know, we're, we're raising the bar. Um, and since Brett's been on here before, uh, we're just going to add one little thing to his bio that ha- he has a screenplay called American Response Squad Elite. They're reading it at uh, the Jaipur International Film Festival in Jaipur, India. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. It's nominated for International Screenplay. That is awesome. That's so cool. We're, very cool. We're very proud for you, proud of you, Brett, and uh, we will keep Thank our fingers you. crossed for you. Thank you. Yes, it's exciting. It was certainly a shock, but um, I'm really excited by everything, and we'll see where it all goes. So, yeah. Awesome. And I know that Andy has not seen the full part of this movie uh this is the first time you've seen the full thing. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, I've seen bits and pieces of it, um, of Labyrinth on HBO when I was a kid. You know, it was always, it always seemed to be on in the summer. Okay. Uh, so, and I would catch this part and that part, and but I never sat down and watched the whole thing all the way through until, until this moment. And I've watched so. it 20,000 times. <laughs> uh, Brett, Brett, where's your number? What, what's your number on this um, I'm actually falling around uh, around Andy here this time because, like, I when I first started, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I just always have this memory of Labyrinth. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've seen it, but it was a long time ago. But, like, as I was watching it, I realized how much of it I had no recollection of. And I kind of came to the realization that, like, oh, I've never actually watched it, you know, through all the way through in one sitting before. It was always just like I caught it on TV or like I knew about it from like clips and like it's huge in pop culture, it's influence and stuff. But yeah, like it was last night was actually also my first time watching it like all the way through in one solid sitting. Nice. Nice. So you have two, two relative newbies and a seasoned professional. So. Fair let's enough. jump in here with some key. Let's jump in here with some key facts uh, on Labyrinth. So Jim Henson and I'm going to back up. Let's jump in here with some key facts on Labyrinth. It's from 1986. Originally, it's a tri-star Jim Henson film. It's now owned by Disney. Now we all watched this one on DVD. By the time this podcast is aired, uh, Labyrinth should be available on Disney Plus. Jim Henson and Brian Froud did The Dark Crystal in the early 80s. They were looking to do another project of a similar scope. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to keep in mind that the Muppets were huge in this time period. Uh, the Great Muppet Caper, The Muppets Take Manhattan. Of course, the TV show Fraggle Rock is in full swing. We are at peak Muppet. Um, so author Dennis Lee, who crafted many a lyric for Fraggle Rock, he also wrote a children's book called Alligator Pie that I'm 
pretty familiar with and, and like a lot. He was tasked with writing a novella to serve as the guiding light for the script, for the idea. And then Terry Jones of Monty Python fame took that story, was tapped by Henson to do this work. He took that story, scrapped it, wrote the original screenplay. Uh, Jones claimed in the original script that Jareth was an all-powerful ruler who used the labyrinth to keep people from getting to his heart. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I liked it too. So once it was decided then that David Bowie would be singing throughout the film, Terry Jones went back to the drawing board for a different draft. And then the project was shelved for unknown reasons uh, until Laura Phillips and someone you might know named George Lucas took a stab at it. Who's that? I had no George Lucas. Yeah, who's that Lucas guy? I've never heard uh, of him. Yeah, I mean he's he's he, he people don't know, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, well, I mean, this is the only American thing he did, cinema, as I recall. Cinema so history. There, there's nothing else. <laughs> this is the thing he's associated with. Nothing else. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that's well, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So, <laughs> David Bowie takes another read at the screenplay. He says it lacks humor, and so Elaine May of Nichols and May fame was hired to make it funny and to humanize the characters. All in all, there's there and there are a bunch of little back and forths like this. All in all, there are 25 treatments and scripts that were created for Labyrinth over a period of two years. Wow. And listen. 25. And listen, I love this movie. It definitely watching it feels like 25 versions of a script stitched together. I, I will concede Agreed. this point for, <laughs> okay. for sure. Oh, we're All gonna right. have some. We're gonna have some conversations here about. We're gonna. This. We're gonna. Yeah, we're gonna get into it. So, <laughs> Helena Bottom Carter, Jane Krakowski, Sarah Jessica Parker, Mary Stuart Masterson, Laura Dern, Marissa Tomei, Ali Sheedy, many many others that you've heard of auditioned for the part of Sarah, but Jennifer Connelly was just fresh off uh, Once Upon a Time in America, and also a teen comedy called Seven Minutes in Heaven. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, landed this part. So, I mean, there are a lot. They've every young woman in this age bracket in Hollywood auditions here. Yeah. Uh, so, like Mary Poppins or some of the early Disney live action movies, all of the tricks you see on screen are actual physical pieces. My favorite example is Michael Malshin. He's a professional contact juggler. He actually juggles the crystal balls by standing behind David Bowie during the filming. He couldn't see what he was doing, so it took a ton of takes. So when you watch the film, please note this wasn't CGI. This was physical, real-life work. Wait a minute. So which, you're telling me that there weren't any CG shots in this at all? So the, the mm-hmm. owl in the opening credits. No, no, no. The owl is... <laughs> no, no, no. And you can see the primitive nature of CGI in 1986. Absolutely. I mean that that work is high. I mean that's that's a, that's as good as it gets. So, but yeah, everything else is physical. So I thought that was pretty cool. Now, Time Magazine movie critic Richard Corliss noted the movie was heavily influenced by The Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. and also he talks about Maurice Sendak. Now, Sendak and Jim Henson actually settle out of court over the plot being so crazy similar to Outside Over There, which is a Sendak book where a nine-year-old's baby sister was stolen by the goblins. Ooh. 
And I believe, so. you know, in Sarah's room, you can see a copy of where the wild thing are and and that scene is added so you'll see all that scene where there's a lot of push and you get to see all of the influences in this and there's actually if you watch the end credits there's a thank you to maurice sendak (laughs) trying to cover um, their bases yeah exactly also if you've seen the 1947 film the bachelor and the bobby soxer which is cary grant and shirley temple i think You'll know the dialogue. You remind me of the man, what man, the man with the power, what power, etc. So the lines of you remind me of the babe are directly lifted from that classic film. When I saw the final scene, I told my husband, this looks like an M.C. Escher painting. Oh, for sure. And if you look closely in Sarah's bedroom, you'll find an Escher print. So there are lots of artistic influences throughout this movie for certain. Now, the film has a budget of $25 million in 1985. It does not do well with American audiences. However, it finds a home with European audiences. That's where it makes its money, particularly in the UK. And it found its people with home video rentals and mm. generates quite a cult following. Yeah. Yes. Even, so that's even what I've got. Right now, as we're recording, I, I got an I got an email from a friend saying that in Pennsylvania, Labyrinth is coming back to the to the movie theaters. People are gonna watch it on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Uh I mean that it, it has a very loyal following. Absolutely. For, which just, is where um, I think this movie probably deserves to be seen. It is absolutely mm-hmm. a spectacle. Yes. No yes. Doubt. Visually, you know, the the production design in it is incredible. It really does an excellent job of like transporting you to this other world. And I don't think it has the because of CGI and all the things we see now, I don't think it has the wow factor that it would have had in 1986. But um, but I think when you realize that all of this is physical, yeah, none of this is animated. It becomes even it becomes pretty powerful. Well, I think it's even more impressive because of that. It's not just, you know, created on a computer. You know, it was built, it was designed and it was put up on there. And there's so much artistry at work. And I think that's where Henson is just thriving. Same with Dark Crystal, where like the strength of both of these movies is its world building and the world that exists in and like the production design and the visuals is just it's astounding. And, and let's for just sure. be clear, the priority for Henson on this one is to stretch the limits of what puppetry can do. Uh, so the same thing can be said true for a lot of like, if you watch old episodes of The Muppet Show, when you see like the visual effects that are happening there right now, for us, they're ho-hum. Uh, but so much of the stuff that he figures out from doing The Dark Crystal and from doing Labyrinth pay off dividends. Like the movies that have come after are built on the foundation mm-hmm. that these movies that these movies built for them. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, a small moment of just like me thinking like, well, how did they do that? Was the moment when the, um, the guard, the, the guard um, is hopping up on the dog, his steed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the shot of the puppet getting on the dog and still remaining animated and like talking and all that. And it's in a single shot. And like, that was, you know, because I figured like, okay, they'd have several different kinds of puppets and you would cut in between using each of them. And no, it was a single shot. It was a wide shot. So you just saw the whole thing in one motion. It hops up on the dog, continues and starts talking and continuing the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, that's like such a small, simple thing, but it's so impressive. It is for sure. Yeah. Shall we get into the plot? Let's do it. All right. We begin 
uh, our conversation, as we always do with the Manish Tana, where I ask, why does this movie begin in the place that it begins? And I'm going to say that, generally speaking, we as a rule don't count the stuff that happens during the credits uh, prior to the actual story happening as the Manish Tana. So when we see this CGI owl flying flying all over the place, um, while if we're in the audience in 1986, we are looking at that and going, oh my gosh, what is this? I've never seen anything like this before. That's not the movie. Uh, that's not the right. movie any more than in 102 Dalmatians where we watch a Dalmatian look at a bunch of spots flying around for four minutes. That's just something that's <laughs> happening during the credits. The actual movie, uh, we begin out in what looks to be the countryside, but we will quickly learn is actually a park. Uh, there is a young young woman. She's She appears to be a princess, and she is giving what sounds to be a climactic speech to an unseen evil force. Uh, mid, uh, She gets about 80% of the way through her speech, suddenly realizes she doesn't know what to say yet, and we realize she is practicing some sort of monologue, possibly for a play. This isn't a medieval fantasy world. This is the real world, and she's someone who is, you know, either either a performer or, or you know, she's just doing it for herself. Uh pretending to be a princess in this particular moment. And I'm going to ask you guys, this speech is going to come back later. Why are we starting our movie here in the park uh, with, with a girl in a dress? What are we, what are we thinking? Well, I mean, when you first watch it, it's obviously there to be a misdirect. Um, I'm sure with the marketing for the film, you know, you're like, I'm going into a fantasy film. So, you know, opening here, it's almost where you would expect a fantasy film to start. Um, and then the the big quote unquote switcheroo is like, oh, no, we're in modern day. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say that like after watching the film as a whole, I think thematically the reason we start here is, is because we're kind of starting where Jennifer Connelly's character like like this is where she thrives. This is her fantasy. This is where she would rather be. This is like we start where she is most comfortable because when she goes home and she's given these responsibilities, we see that she is not comfortable with them. Um, and so I think that the reason we also start here character wise is we're showing where Sarah as a character is most comfortable. She is most comfortable in this kind of fantasy um, uh, imagination, whether that's based on a play that she's reading or a book of some kind, it is a fantasy world of some of some sort that she is most comfortable in. I right, right. I mean, she's this is a definitely an establishing that she has an active fantasy life that she mm -hmm. it's very meaningful to her, but it also feels very private. Like maybe she doesn't have a lot of friends, or maybe yes. she's in her own in her own world. Really, we we never see or we're not in the real world for particularly long, but we see no mm -hmm. references, hear no references to Sarah having actual friends or a social life of any particular kind. In fact, in a little bit, her stepmother will say, I wish that you were going out tonight with your friends. Yeah. But since you were, you know, like I made plans because you said you were staying home tonight. Um, so so it, it could be uh, part of this is her loneliness and what have you. 
I want to posit that this opening scene here is letting us know that this this movie is uh, like a stage magician show. It's all illusions. It's all magic tricks uh, that 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 you can't trust in a visual medium. It's very weird to be like, you can't trust your eyes. We're going to show you things, but the things that we're showing you are not necessarily as they seem. And I think, I think if you, I, I think it's subtle. I mean, it's subtly done here. I mean, it's not going to be as subtle later on. Later on, it's definitely going to feel like a magic trick, but, but right this second, it's like, you jumped to a conclusion. You thought it was this thing. It's not this thing. We fooled you. We fooled mm-hmm. you even before we we yeah. took us to the magical realm. And they have that recurring like line of dialogue about like taking things for granted and you know mm-hmm. taking things at face value. And so there's that. You know, it's kind of like weaved in there visually. Oh right. Oh for sure. Uh, we move from the Manish Tanat into the exposition. There is precious little exposition. We know that Sarah uh, has um, Sarah lives with her father and her stepmother. Her stepmother has recently had Sarah's half brother Toby. Uh, Sarah's mother and father are going out for the evening. Sarah's relationship with both both of her parents is fraught. Her stepmother gives a line of saying she insists on treating me like an evil stepmother from some sort of storybook. Uh, yeah. She Sarah has previous to this movie agreed to watch Toby this evening. She does not want to do it now. Um, I think it's fair to characterize uh, her reaction to watching the, to watching the child as like a temper tantrum or a hit. So Overdramatic, I would say. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not on her side when she when she, when she's doing this. She she's making a big deal out of something that she agreed to do. Uh. But she is tasked with babysitting the baby for this evening. But that really isn't the inciting incident of the movie. What would you guys say the inciting incident of the movie is? It's a little tricky to pinpoint, but maybe you've got it. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure it's tricky. I, I think that it's if, if Toby isn't stolen by the, by the goblins, we don't have a movie. Right, and that feels like the inciting incident to me. I mean, well, I would actually just one second. There's a sentence that she says. If she doesn't say that sentence, the goblins don't come and take away the baby. Right, right. Which is kind of funny. Which is kind of funny. She has to want it, right, for that to happen. She she has to ask for it, right? Right. Yes. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. Is I think I think it's her actually saying the words is the inciting incident for like because when they the goblins actually show up and Bowie shows up and stuff and says like well you kind of did this so you have to come get him if you want him I feel like that's then you're breaking the two so like and, and part of the debate is like well do I even want to do that it's my fault now the realization so I would say that the uh, like the asking the 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 quote unquote spell the casting of the spell the saying of the words the wishing that he would be taken away is probably your inciting incident. And I have some questions. I, I would actually argue it's the same thread. It's just a little further on that thread that her decision to rescue Toby is the inciting incident. It's the decision she makes that she's going to fight to get Toby back. Uh, because, again, we don't have a movie if she doesn't go on the journey. But that's the same thread. It's just a it's a, just a moment 
That's quibbling. I will say yeah. the big question, there's some questions I have about the inciting incident that are never answered by the movie. And I'm wondering what you take of it. Is this the first time that Sarah has met Jareth, the Goblin King? Has the story she tells of a Goblin King coming to a young girl and telling her a sentence that she could say that would make her dreams come true, that, she, that he gave her gifts and what have you, do you guys think that that has happened? Or do you think that this actually is the first time that Sarah has met Jareth? It's a hard question. Oh, that's a, that is a hard question. That is an I mean, interesting it kind of question. Like, it kind of feels like um, their relationship to me feels, and, and, and it's not completely analogous, but it feels a lot like Jane Eyre and, and Mr. Rochester. Ooh. You know, you've got this kind of two... This guy that's sort of untouchable. I feel like they've had a they've had a interactions before. She doesn't seem she knows who he is. She does. When she doesn't dead. ask. She's not like, who are you? She doesn't who have a you? moment where what she happened? says, Yeah, the, like, go- the goblin what- king is real. I thought it was just mm-hmm. a story. She doesn't say any of that. She yeah, just starts interacting with him. Right. And I think the also the way that the the characters respond to her at the end also kind of lends to that. Because the her the you know the characters from her imagination from the goblin land and all that stuff when they show up at the end they're like well we're always here you just have to call on us mm, right and stuff and so it feels like it's something that's always been there and like with the the way it is it is kind of done as this like imagination this this fantasy this this um other world that she's like kind of entering into maybe it's real maybe it's not maybe it's all just kind of like in her head and stuff um and her relationship with jareth it absolutely feels like the imagination of a young a young woman who's like you know kind of lonely but like going through puberty where she's like mom is saying you should go on dates she clearly wants to go on dates with boys from the way she reacts to that and here is this fantasy of this tall beautiful ruler that is in love with her that sings to her that gives her power that gives her abilities and rules over this kind of world and i feel like it it just it kind of all folds into this this fantasy that she has because of either loneliness or you know just you know growing up and being in that at that that time in her life and dealing with stepmom and her unhappiness in her her real world you know now she has a younger brother that is uh from the way she reacts you know stealing the spotlight it's now all about toby it's no longer yeah. about her but then jareth is all about her mm. so it's and also, obsessed it's also, with her it's also an escape right I yes mean, she has yes. An, a way to escape reality we see that in the Manishtana. But then now when he's real, it's real. So, mm-hmm. but then I thought, is, she, is this some sort of dream state? Like that was my first thought. Well, so this is, this is some sort of dream state that she's in right now. Cause she does go flop down on her bed. It's, we know mom and dad are coming back at midnight. It's kind of late. Yeah. That's the question is like, is it a dream? Is it like some f- like f- 
flight of fancy in her like imagination right. or is it an actual physical traveling to another world so i I'm, right. I'm going to throw out to you some some thoughts i have on this and i don't want to posit that i'm right but i will posit i have given this a great deal of thought over my <laughs> over the 38 years in which i've been alive in this movie existed we won't we no. won't count like the first 9 or 10 uh where i didn't watch it fair um, but so what I think is happening in this particular scene is sometimes when I'm in a dream, my dream comes with pre-crafted memories that haven't been in the dream, but like backstory mm. and, and that backstory instantly becomes real. Like, oh, this is my secret apartment underground in New York City that only I know about that I've had for 15 years. And like that fact gets like accepted as part of the dream logic. And I can right. I'll actually I'll just I'll say to someone in the dream, don't tell anybody about my secret apartment, but we can get in right here. You know, like I like, want to see your secret apartment. Oh, oh yeah! What are you doing in your secret apartment? Oh, Dude, you, you just told everybody. Apartment. You just told everybody. You don't know where it is. A secret anyway. You don't know where it is. Um, Fair, but Fair. but what what I'll throw out <laughs> that I think is happening here is in this telling of the story to Toby, she is giving form to the Goblin King, who does not actually exist in a given form yet. She is actually creating him. She creates a dream-related backstory, which she will now accept as real, and mm -hmm. that, that she's met him before. But this is actually the first real meeting of Sarah mm -hmm. and Jareth. And you have to accept a certain amount of dream logic for that to be particularly true. One neat thing, uh, you know, I, I, as I was looking at Sarah's room, there's so much, like, treasure in Sarah's room. Sarah's room is very much my room right now, where you'll find a copy of The Wizard of Oz or Neverland or or what have you. Uh, I couldn't find it this time, but but my but there is a picture of of a woman who looks like an older version of Sarah, who's presumably Sarah's birth mom, dancing with David Bowie. Oh, and so so if that is actually part of Sarah's backstory. That's why the Goblin King looks like Bowie, because yeah. she's drawing on – we'll see this in a number of different places. Um, you know, like when we talked about where the wild things are, Ludo comes from mm -hmm. where the wild things are. The, the Escher yes. staircase comes from the painting. Uh, right. I can't wait to tell you where Sir Didymus comes from. But, but, but like she is crafting this world. She's, she's, she doesn't recognize it. She's giving this this world form. The power all yeah. comes from her to name, to create, to 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 make. Uh, and so, you're, I, so you're, just one second. So you're saying her subconscious is creating this world that her conscious mind isn't aware of. I, that is exactly what I'm saying. Okay. I like that. Okay. I like that a lot. That, I do too. That's interesting. And and so when when we talk about who the Goblin King is, I, I mean, we'll talk about it a little bit when we get to character. But there's a line that he says uh, that that I just absolutely love. It's maybe the best line in this whole movie, which is the Goblin King says, "I am exhausted from living up to your expectations." <laughs> in other in other words, like he is trying to be everything that she has crafted him to be. She made him. Yeah. She mm -hmm. made him and she's treating him like he's the bad guy. 
but she made him to be the bad guy. It's so beautiful and complicated and messy as all heck, you guys. Yeah. Um, and what's funny, I'll move us forward in plot. What's funny is the plot is fairly straightforward if you want to talk about it as a plot. Sarah goes to the labyrinth. There are challenges in the labyrinth. She's trying to get to the castle at the center of the labyrinth where the Goblin King has her brother, Toby. That's the plot. That's Mm -hmm. the rising action. Along the way, she has obstacles. There are a number of obstacles. Most of the obstacles are one and done. As in the Wizard of Oz, she makes some friends along the way uh, who, who join her on her journey. I would say the only real subplot we get in this story is not a Sarah plot, but a Hoggle plot, which is mm, that yeah. that along along the journey, like the Goblin King keeps coming to Hoggle and basically telling Hoggle that he has to betray Sarah. Uh, and and if if there's a subplot in this movie, it's Hoggle's struggle that he wants to be Sarah's friend but that the Goblin King has power over him and he's afraid of, afraid of him. Uh, mm-hmm. That, that I would say is the subplot there. But I, I actually think yeah. like who she meets and what she does is the fun of the journey, but it's not plot. It's just moments. Is that, mm-hmm. is that yes. fair? And- no, no, I, I, I think that that is a great way of looking at that because one of my issues while watching the film was like, um, the pacing is very like kind of start stop at times. And I think that's because um, you have this, this plot that allows for these, they're essentially almost like vignettes where Mm -hmm. there are these like singular little moments in between them. And like Jim Henson is so good at that, you know, with Muppet show being a variety hour show and stuff. But however, at the same time, that doesn't like always lend itself well to moving your plot forward at a good pace. Right. Because, you know, you, you're just dealing with, and then this happens, and then she runs into this person, and then this happens, instead of one thing affecting the other and pushing that along. Well, um, and I had it, a hard time finding out where the midpoint of this film was because of that. Well, isn't it interesting, too, that Terry Jones writes this, and this feels very Monty Python and the Holy Grail to me. Hmm. It feels like there's a que- it's a quest movie. And so I think there's... that vignette kind of going to this thing and having this interaction with these people. And then you have to overcome this and all of that feels very Monty Python. Can you imagine trying to analyze Monty Python and the Holy Grail using the lens that we use here, where we're going to be like, where like the plot of Monty Python and the Holy Grail gets boiled down to a bunch of knights go looking for the Holy Grail. (laughs) <laughs> that's it right right and what happens that's it. And, and irrelevant obstacles and well yeah op- this obstacle happens and that obstacle happens and this is funny and that's funny and but it is a series of vignettes right that are almost standalone right you could watch each of them as a standalone piece and not all of them inform the other until right. i mean but but it also has this wizard of oz thing going on too where you know she's in a different world and she meets this person and then she meets this person and she's car- she, by the end of it, she's got three, uh, three compatriots and a dog. Yeah. Uh, so it feels very Wizard of Oz yes. that way, too. So I, I was actually going to say, Andy, looking at my notes, uh, that this movie <laughs> is as if you take the idea of Wizard of Oz, which is 
She's going to meet some companions and she has lessons of wisdom to learn along her journey. Mm-hmm. But structurally, you, you go, instead of going from Wizard of Oz, you steal from Alice in Wonderland. Where Alice in Wonderland, you Fair. can shuffle the events in any mm-hmm. given order. It doesn't yeah. matter whether she meets the White Rabbit before she meets the Dodo, before she meets the Mad Hatter, the sequ- or or when Tweedledee and Tweedledum start singing for 20 minutes. You, you could rearrange and shuffle those in any order, and the movie is pretty much unchanged till you get to the final set piece. And so it doesn't mm-hmm. have as strong a plot structure as The Wizard of Oz does. It is not as purely rooted in nonsense as Alice in Wonderland is. It's this It's this middle path. Mm-hmm. It's this middle path. Um, what would you guys say the climax of this movie is? Well, I think the break into three would be the moment when they as a team decide to storm the castle and get back Toby. I think that is where all of the vignettes kind of come together. All of her lessons come together. And now she has done the thing that she kind of couldn't do out in the real world. She has now gathered a, a bunch of friends and she has people that care about her and she has people that she cares about. And so they are all going to work together for the common goal of rescuing Toby. So I would say that that is the start of that. But then you have the actual, like when they go in as a group and then you have the moment where she's like, she goes up the stairs and she's like, I need to do this on my own. So I think that would fall under like the Mm -hmm, personal, the mm -hmm. personal climax, but like the, the larger, like the set piece is beforehand with the group. And then her, her personal climax is like, you could call it maybe like the duel with the goblin King where she goes up on her own. I completely agree. I would have to say in this movie, it is the confrontation between Sarah and the Goblin King. That mm-hmm. that w- while all of that stuff is leading to the climax uh, and feels climactic, this big this big war between the goblins and, and Sarah and her friends in the rocks, um, that, that actually it is the one-on-one, Sarah and the Goblin, print, uh, Goblin King must have this confrontation. We've been moving towards it at the beginning. Will she defeat the Goblin King and rescue Toby? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the climax. Then we get some falling action, and the falling action is kind of weird, uh, as this whole movie is kind of weird. In, in case you guys a didn't little, notice, yeah. In case you didn't, well, notice. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's, you know, but it's it's not a it's not a bad weird. I mean, weird no. isn't bad. It's just a matter of yeah. As as someone who is weird, I am glad that you said that. <laughs> I was going to say, welcome, welcome to weird. We have we have cookies. Yes, right. for, for sure. <laughs> cookies um, and coffee in the basement. <laughs> but but in this falling action, Sarah is back in her house. Toby is back in his crib. Mom and Dad come home and notice that she seems to be miraculously changed. Whereas, whereas before she, like when, when, when they left, she was a petulant brat and now she seems to be a little bit more mature. Uh, she takes her favorite doll and she gives it to Toby and then she goes in front of the mirror and we are not, I guess, fully back in reality because in the mirror, she starts to see most of the characters in the labyrinth. Uh, specifically, you know, Ludo, Didymus, Hoggle, uh, talking to her from the other side of the of the mirror, 
saying, you know, if you ever need us, we'll be there for you. To which she says, but I do need you. And she turns around and almost every character from the labyrinth is now in her bedroom and they're having a dance party. And birthday hats and everything. Yes. Although you'll notice one character from the labyrinth is not there. And that is Bowie. Bowie is my David Bowie. Jareth, the goblin king is not there. (laughs) Although the, is he, is he not there? Is he, Uh, is he there in the poster? The owl. The owl. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, the owl's outside watching. That's right. Yeah, he's there. He's there. So while I think Jareth is the form that Sarah gave to the Goblin King, Mm -hmm. that owl is watching and knows that Sarah is having this dance party. It 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 was it was there waiting for her at the beginning, and it's there watching her at the end, and then it flies away. Mm -hmm. And that is how Labyrinth ends. With maybe more questions. I was just going to say, with more questions than you had at the beginning. But at least the baby is back in his crib, because that is the thing that... He's going to have a lot of therapy when he gets older, but he's okay. I don't know that Toby's going to remember. Well, I don't remember that much. And I'll say this. Toby is actually the son of Brian Froud, right? Toby Froud. So he is a puppeteer now. He's a sculptor. He's a fabricator. In the movie, he was originally named Freddie. But they changed it to Toby so as not to confuse him. Yeah. So and and like it's not yeah. like it's not like Toby's a bad name, right? No. Like, it's and it's super it's super. So I I think Toby's great. Oh, I That's think neat. so too. And I think probably, but when he's crying around all the Muppets, I'm like, oh my god, really? So come on. The, that is actually <laughs> not all of the crying was intentional originally. They didn't expect him to <laughs> have. Scared. I did research on this because because it's upsetting to imagine that like they purposely traumatized a baby and scared them like to get the reaction on it. Yeah. Uh, so what happened was in the first few takes, the baby was crying. Baby found Bowie to be scary and. Look at him. He looks scary. But what they started doing to get like Toby comfortable with Jareth is Bowie would take a puppet off camera and start and start moving it and and playing it around. And Toby would fixate on the puppet and ignore the scary looking guy who who he was who was sitting whose lap he was sitting Uh. on whose scene he was doing. And that's that's what kept him calm. So so in a way. Like, like the puppets may have originally scared him, but then they found a way to use the puppets to to entrance him to 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 to. And like, I mean, and his, I mean, it, it, obviously, That's I mean, the trick his father. Larry did with his kids when they were terrified of him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, obviously, the father. Obviously, the father is a is a, a part of Jim Henson's creative team. But I mean, I think it's cool that Toby, as an adult, is still. Yeah. I mean, well, who knows? That, I mean, of course, this influenced him. I had to have. So I wanted to talk cool. to you guys a little bit about surrealism, which is most of the time when we watch movies, uh, Andy and I, will, and probably I'm more guilty of this than Andy, will pick at nits of logic and story where, where other people might wave their hands and just say that it's a movie 
Uh, Andy and I will start talking about, you know, for example, failings in the medical health profession that allows Cruella DeVille to be transformed back and forth by the ringing of a clock. Like, why does that? So it is surprising to me that we have not done that yet, even though you've gone through the plot. So I am very curious to hear your discussion of surrealism. So so keeping keeping in mind, like, so one of the things that I think most movies deal with, and this movie is not at all concerned with, is the idea that the story needs to be undergirded by logic and structure. And it needs to make sense. That when we see this movie, we aren't asking a lot of questions that would would break the reality of the movie. And so very often, very often, Andy and I will be watching a movie and and say, for example, there's a movie about a young girl in space and she, you know, she's playing around on her space station and uh, she finds a machine and she opens up an airlock, uh, which randomly like sends some guy's desk out into space. And Andy and I might be like, why is there an airlock in this guy's office? Uh, Who designed that? Uh, why, why is it controlled by this machine in a random room? Uh, why does it look like, why does she think it's an arcade? Like, why, 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 why? Because the movie is asking us to take, like, the fantasy element is we're on a space station. That's the part we're not supposed to question. But once we're on a space station, I want to really feel like we're in a space station. There right. should be internal logic. Internal logic right. to it. And and if I have to suspend my judgment, I need to do it for the world, right? Like, yes. and not for the elements inside the world. I think that's yeah. What everything saying. within everything within that world should should work and make enough sense that like you're not constantly questioning things. You know, you're just like, no, we're here. This is what where we're it's doing. not just convenient that something happens mm-hmm. for the plot to move forward, but it actually makes sense. But those you know, are in all that world. elements for realism. And that's not what we're going for in this particular movie. This movie is surreal. It's meant to be dreamlike. And the cat, one of the things that you'll notice is things happen in this movie that if we were there or if we were awake, we would just question. Sarah looks out her window. Suddenly there's a castle and a labyrinth in the background. Right? Like the reality just like falls away. Suddenly she's outside. And she's not constantly asking questions like, how did I get here? Where did my room go? Where did the outside go? It just happens and she accepts it because we are not meant to accept this world as reality. It's all, it's a nonsense realm. It's a nonsense mm-hmm. realm. Does it a nonsense realm where anything can happen at any time? Where, and, Yet at yeah. the same time, I think Henson does a great job of making it all feel like coherent, and like there almost is like an internal nonsense logic that still holds it all together. It does, and it doesn't, because on the one hand there are rules, but then on the other hand, midway through the movie, the Goblin King will just say. And I'm changing the rules. He will say, Mm -hmm. you have until the stroke of midnight to get there, but the clock has 13 numbers on it. So where Mm -hmm. is midnight? Right? Right. So so there is, 
there is a logic, there are rules, but we're also meant to know that the logic and rules are malleable. And mm-hmm. anything that is true at one particular moment may not be true for the next moment, which is why I think, you know, in a lot of films, when I hear that it's been through 25 drafts, my first thought is, oh, 25 drafts and a bunch of different writers. Oh, boy. Oh, no. What is the final piece going to look like here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in a movie in which each scene is meant to have its own rules and own underlying logic, it's forgivable because it's not meant to be consistent. And I, I mean, I, I think for me, what this movie does more than anything else is this movie from, I'm part of the reason I love it is it creates this realm where like the rules fall away and the movie just does what it wants to do. And, and, and yet, and yet it's still telling a story. And that is well, which is an interesting look at the at how Henson sees um, his own work, right? That yeah. it's malle that it's constantly malleable, that things can constantly be changed or figured out. And I mean, thematically, it's kind of how he runs that creature shop, huh? Well, and that, yes. but that also like that falls in line really with like kind of the old school fairy tale fantasy. Like this feels like a modern day version of one of those old timey like Grimm's fairy tales mm-hmm. where everything is a little bit more like it's more important that it it serves a thematic purpose than it serves a logic purpose. Like if that makes sense. It does. That does make sense. And I, I wanna I wanna plug just two things with Jim Henson, what what comes before this and what comes after this. So this comes on the heels of The Dark Crystal. I, I mean, obviously, he's made some Muppet movies in between, but the Muppet movies are their own thing. Um, you know, he, so we, we watched The Dark Crystal together. And what we saw in The Dark Crystal was we felt like in order to fully understand that movie, you needed to have your PhD in Dark Crystallology. Um, you, right. you, there were a lot of rules. There were a lot of backstories. Every, every detail of that world was meticulously planned to create uh, a cohesive working ecosystem where everything makes sense if only you are privy to the thousands of journals scribed by Jim Henson uh, and, mm-hmm. and, his, and his staff. Right. And how much of that translates to a viewer, I think, is limited. I love The Dark Crystal, but I think it's limited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here, we're overcorrecting in the opposite direction. Yes. There are things that he wants to do, and the rules are going to change from place to place to place. There may be some thematic rules, some some emotional resonance that's trying to be crafted here, but it's very loose. Uh, it, it's almost like we're going through the beds of Goldie, Goldilocks. The dark crystal was too firm. Maybe labyrinth is too soft. Right. What comes okay. on the heels of this, and I really want to plug this to to our listeners if you've never seen them. Uh, at Jim Henson, when the Muppet Show is over, uh, creates another Muppet Show. It's called the Jim Henson Hour, where for the first half hour of every episode, it's Muppets doing Muppet things and sketches, all all the stuff, all the stuff that you loved from the Muppet Show. He's playing a lot more with computer 
animation and and CGI and all of that stuff, but he's still doing the that kind of silliness. But the second half of every episode is Jim Henson's The Storyteller, where where he's using like he's telling a much more short stories from Grimm's fairy tales, Hans my Hedgehog, The Soldier and Death, these fairy tales we don't know. And if you see those, that's where he learns to marry the two things from the Dark Crystal and from mm-hmm. Labyrinth and get it just okay. right. The surreal elements grounded in a logic that only needs to sustain itself for a half hour. Uh, and I strong, like from a puppeteering perspective, the puppeteering he's doing there is very sophisticated and gorgeous. Uh, and by the same token, the stories are emotionally resonant and, uh, and unfortunately, Jim passes away shortly thereafter, but that was the trajectory he was on. And it's just so great to watch. Yeah. So so what you're saying is there is a marriage of, in the best, best case scenario, is a marriage of story logic and surrealism to give us a, a piece where there's a lot of imagination, but there's also some really fulfilling... There's some, there's some things this thing is saying. I, I, I mean, that's the thing I like about the Dark Crystal in that it, this movie is saying something yeah. meaningful, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure Labyrinth is saying anything. Oh, <laughs> but it is, Andy. Oh, but it is. We'll get to uh, it. Look what you've okay. done, Andy. Oh, I know. No. I'm sorry. It's my fault. <laughs> Welcome to my madness. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. Okay. So let's talk about characters. I mean, we have we have lots, and we'll go long. It's fine. Um, I want to get into some of the character work here, mm-hmm. and I want to start with Sarah. Um, I texted Larry during this because I did not like her from the start, and that's fair. And I know this is I'm I. She seems so put out. She transfers her put outness onto a baby. She's mean to the baby. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think if we're comparing her to say Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz or Alice, right? From Alice in Wonderland, I think those are fair comparisons. Dorothy has a want. She wants to save Toto from Miss Gulch. Uh Alice is bored stiff by her lessons. That's a flaw, but she's not mean as a snake about it. Um, Sarah's mean. Yes. And I found Sarah to be very unlikable in the beginning. She's mean toward her baby. She's mean toward her stepmother, but she's mean toward a baby. And I think it makes her a character I don't like from the get-go. So I found myself wanting her to suffer. Maybe it's because I've raised a bunch of teenagers. Sorry, kids. But I found (laughs) myself wanting her to suffer in the same way she had made the baby suffer. Well, I I think that is all fair. And if you want to say there's a flaw in this movie, and there are multiple flaws in this movie, which I love, I would say that we don't have a save the cat moment that mm-hmm. that in that, even before the inciting incident, lets us know that there's some goodness in Sarah. I right. Think, right. That's true. Like we don't get um we don't get a good example of a moment where she is so- being softer to someone or she is, you know, it's she she does seem very selfish in the beginning because we don't get any other examples. We just see her in these two moments and these two moments are like not great for her mm-hmm. as a character. And I think that's definitely part of her 
character development. She does soften throughout the the film. She does learn lessons from the different characters throughout the film. And I think that's part of it. But then my question to you, Larry, then is like with the ending kind of being the way it is, does she truly learn? A le- I mean, she's being nicer to Toby, but at the same time, she uh, also knows that she can just kind of get whatever she wants in her imaginary world, right? I, like, I'm, imagine my uh, Vicini from from Princess Bride voice as as if I'm Wallace Shawn, and I go, "But you guys have fallen into a classic trap, <laughs> and that classic trap is assuming that Sarah is like Alice from Alice in Wonderland or Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz, when in fact she's Ebenezer Scrooge." from A Christmas Carol. And Ebenezer Scrooge at the beginning of the movie has no redeemable qualities that are there. Mm. Uh, There are multiple times where he is called in that opening sequence to, to better himself, to rise to the occasion, to join his fellow man in the ideas of love. But Ebenezer Scrooge has forgotten how to love. Sarah is more like Scrooge than he than she is like Dorothy or Alice. She's a mm. abrasive teenage version of Scrooge. Uh, and <laughs> and I will I will grant you that is hard to root for. But so is Scrooge at the beginning of a Christmas carol. And if you start to look at the labyrinth, not as She's going to fight the Wicked Witch of the West. She's not. What she is doing is she's having visitations from the spirits. Everything she comes across in the labyrinth is designed to teach her the lesson that will cause her to be able to love. At the end of the movie, she has to be able to love Toby. She has to be able to have put aside all of the negative parts of who she is and become something better. And so like, as we talk about characters, I'll talk about, I'll talk about what, what they teach her necessarily. Um, but it, the very first thing that she learns is she gets to the, she gets to the labyrinth. She hasn't even set foot inside the labyrinth. She sees this. I, I, I'm going to say that Hoggle um, is, is a, uh, I, I don't want to. I don't want to call him a gnome or a hobbit or, or anything along those lines. But he's a he's a ugly fairy creature, sort of like a changeling redcap. Would you agree with me? He he is he is he is um, not pleasing to look at. He's but he's magical though. Child. He does. He's have, magical. He, and he can certainly dart in and out of the labyrinth at various points for sure. So so he's he's right. magical in some way. She sees mm-hmm. him murdering what she thinks is murdering fairies. The fairies are so pretty and beautiful. And she immediately jumps to the conclusion that this thing that is ugly is killing these things that are beautiful and that he's wrong to do it. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, when she picks up the fairy, the fairy bites her. And Hoggle is right. To, these, these fairies are vermin. He's right. And in fact, Hoggle though his appearance is outwardly, you know, uh, yucky, uh, is actually like he's he's not wrong. There's more mm-hmm. there than she thought. Um, the first thing she learns is things are not what they seem, that you can't go by aesthetic. And that's that's like 
15 seconds in, she's already learning things. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, Hoggle, and I, I would say that Hoggle, well, we'll get to Hoggle. Uh, well, let's jump to Hoggle. Let's jump to him, Brian Henson. I mean, he's conflicted, right? He wants to do, he wants to be on her side. He wants a friend because he hasn't had one. But then he also has Jareth that he's, I think, a little afraid of, right? More than a little yes. afraid of. The bog of yeah, eternal stench. Little- Right? Yeah, that's right. That bog. Yeah. Uh, Don't ever want to smell like the, that. You know, the fart swamp. That's what it is. We know what it is. <laughs> it's a fart swamp. But but uh, Hoggle's problem is Hoggle also believes that his appearance is who he truly is. Hoggle mm. sees himself and he also sees a dirty changeling creature that isn't good on the inside. And when Sarah starts to see more in Hoggle, that is when Hoggle begins to change, right? Yeah, so, like, he's sure. got, like, the problem that Saracy has to come over with Hoggle is also the problem Hoggle has to come over. Hoggle is telling himself throughout this movie, I'm not good. I have no friends. No one will ever like me. All that matters is the things that I can get. No one's ever been good to me, and I'll never be good to anyone. And all of that changes for him. He is He is the second... Um, he's the second protagonist, the deuteragonist, the, the rich, he's got this rich thing in our journey for him, just like mm-hmm. there is mm-hmm. with Sarah on that. And it's not a coincidence that he's the first companion that she meets along the way. All right. Uh, let's talk about Toby for a minute. Um, Toby. I'm really glad that they show that the baby is unharmed inside. There was a choice that they were talking about at one point to not show the inner labyrinth at any time. Um, mm. And I think if they had not made the decision to do that, I would have had a complete panic attack. Um, we have to know baby, he's okay, right? Be, we right. do. Yeah. We have to know that he is, he's, I mean, yes, he's in captivity, but he's, you know, he's smiling and happy he's and, and well. he's alive and well. Right. Exactly. I mean, we do worry about him. Right. But, um, and we certainly want to see him back in his crib but imagine, if you will, if those scenes weren't there. Right. Yikes. Yikes. Right. And we need to see him having a good time, right? Right. He's partying right. with the goblins. He's not being tortured by them. Jared right. isn't being cruel to him. Um, you know, he, he like there's there's something going on there. What do you think the stakes are for Toby in this movie? I'm curious because people have told me two different things. That what well, they think. At the beginning, don't they say that? If Toby spends so much time there, he'll turn into a goblin. That is a possible interpretation of what's going to happen to Toby, which leads to, to the question, what about all the other goblins there? Are they other children? And, and Sarah is the only one who really tried to get them back. I don't, oh be- I don't believe that to be true, but that interpretation is entirely valid in terms of what, what we've been told. Right. I think the last the last person to be taken by the labyrinth wasn't the goblins. I think it was Jareth. The Goblin King. I think I, I think this is where I, I think in a Peter Pan coming through your window sort of way, this mm-hmm. is how you get a goblin king. The goblin king takes another takes takes a child and that child grows up to become the new goblin king. That's that makes sense. That's how I that's how I read it. If I was gonna do a sequel to Labyrinth. It would be about Toby grown up, but the labyrinth is calling to him again. That, that's where I would go. Cool. 
Yeah, that's like good. That. Uh, let's talk about Jareth and David Bowie. Oh, um, such a great performance. He's wonderful. <laughs> I, you know, I have some He's real. So I, good. I don't know. No, nope. so, no, Andy, Andy, say what you I just say. really have some. I really have some struggles with this. Okay, there, there is, um, and I think I think it's great to a point, um, but there is a seduction scene after she eats the poison peach that is creepy. Um, the, the, the hallucination at the dance party. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And I'm like, this. I mean, we all looked at each other as a family and we were like, what is this? And I'm like, it was 1986. I don't think this is a, a scene that we're going to get today. Um, there's also a lot of gaslighting going on where Sarah says things like, give me the child. And he's like, you know, beware. I've been generous up till now. Right. Mm-hmm. And she's like, generous. What have you done that's generous? And he's like, everything. Right. So it's, um, I'm exhausted from living up to your expectations. Isn't that generous? Right. So there's, it is, it is weird. Uh, um, but the, key, and he, I'm oh, sorry. You keep and going. he says things, he says things like, you know, I ask for so little, just fear me, love me, do as I say, and I'll be your slave. What a creepy thing for an adult male to say to a teen girl. Exactly. And that's that I, I, I was like, I'm done. I can't. I mean, I finished the movie, but that's where I'm like, that's my sticking point. It was just really hard to watch. It's, I will agree with you there, but I also think that it's like, it's kind of, it's coming from, from Sarah. I feel like, I feel like it's coming from her. It's like, uh, in a way, it's like her fantasy of like this older so man. She's projecting that, like, her yeah, own it's stuff like, onto him. Okay. Right. And it's like this older man who's beautiful, who sings to me, who wants to like, you know, give me everything, who I am, I'm the only important thing in his world. And like all these different, like, I don't, it is weird. It is absolutely weird. It's not okay. But it's I think jarring. that that's, I think that that's how like it's, it's supposed to be viewed at, at the very least like i think mm-hmm. it's i think it's her fantasy so so i'm gonna say i i agree with brett on this one what i'll say is number one he's not an adult male he's a changeling which is a separate thing entirely his mindset isn't human his mindset is other he has allowed sarah to create this persona of being the goblin king like mm-hmm. he She gave him a personality, which is everything she wants him to be. And now she's rejecting it. And from his perspective, it's like, you created me to come in, tell you that you're special, give you presents, and take away anyone who made you feel less special than you are. That is what you have crafted me to do. And then the second I do the things you wanted me to do... You start fighting me. I'm like, like it is, it is, it's an alien mindset to be sure. And if, if you took these same two characters and you put them in reality and you made them a human adult and a teenage girl, Andy, I'm right there with you on the yuck factor on it. Yeah. But in fact, the key line at the end of this is what Sarah says to Jareth, which is, you have no power over me. Right. It's because the power is not the Goblin King has power and Sarah must obey it. The the power goes the other way. What the power that Sarah has given to the Goblin King, 
she's taking back. And then the labyrinth shatters. Uh, it's look like it's, it's, me- I see the look of suspicion on Andy's face. No, but here. it's <laughs> no. I like, mean, there's, there's a, I mean, I don't think we're going to write a movie like this today. Oh, for sure I not. I mean, I think no. there's like an ick factor that it's too hard. That's too much of a nuance for me to put in a family movie where it's I'm going to throw a line to you. You're gonna. You're gonna. You you're can gonna, do it. Ready? You can do it. But I. It does feel icky to me. I'm going to throw a line yeah. to you. Here's the line. Um. Hoggle says to Sarah, what's your name? And Sarah says, Sarah. And Hoggle goes, thought so. It's always Sarah. And, and like the Jareth's whole world comes from Sarah. Everything in the labyrinth comes from Sarah. Hoggle knows it. The Goblin King knows it. Sarah just doesn't know it. Ludo, Ron Muick. Um, I love Ludo. Sure. Why do you he's, love Ludo? He's, because he's 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 sweet and generous of spirit. Although I didn't like Sarah when she met him, so I was hoping he would eat her. Um, <laughs> I kept waiting for bat. I was like, please, can the cleaners get her? What like, we I realize like is her. Andy doesn't believe in redemption, which is shocking. <laughs> no, I absolutely me. believe in redemption until you start messing with you know, until you're mean to a baby. Come on, it's awful. You, oh anyway. God. There are times where I held my babies and they were crying and that I, in my heart of hearts, if you'd ask me, did I want to be in the room holding the screaming baby that was spitting up on me? I didn't. Did I love the baby? I love the baby. Was I having a great time in that moment? Oh, I see. And that's, I, I would just sit and cry with them. So <laughs> it's hard. I know, I know. I'm right here with you. You're children, seeing two right? different styles of parenting here, ladies life and gentlemen. Rough. It's um, hard. But Lu- yeah. But anyway, back to Ludo. Ludo is, um, I mean, he's fun and simple and a simple character. And, and yet, I mean, cowardly lionish in a way. I was going to say the same thing. He's cowardly lion. He's Clifford the big red dog. Mm-hmm, he's, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, this he's this, the, and he's also a, another representation of "Don't judge a book by its cover." You know, we we initially hear a, a big scary roar, we be, see this big scary monster, but you know, Ludo he's all barking, no bite. Yeah, well, yep. right. That's exactly it. Ludo doesn't know his strength. He doesn't know his power, uh, and his right. power actually doesn't come from his physicality. His power comes from friendship. His ability to inspire friendship in others. Um, so, so even though Sarah sees this monster being hung by the side of the road and she could just be like, not my problem. That's not my Mm -hmm. baby brother. Uh, the goblins are all torturing him. I can just move past. Like instinctively, she knows I'm called to be his friend and I need to, I need to defend the defenseless, which is the first time we see her do something that's altruistic. Correct. The first time. Yes. Yeah. Which is, is kind of. Puts her on a path to redemption that I'm like, okay. Ludo. Maybe you're, maybe you're not all bad. The lesson she learns about Ludo is Ludo, what's Ludo's power? Ludo's power is he cries to summon help. That's what mm-hmm. a baby does. Right. He is, he mm-hmm. is Toby. Yeah. And instead, okay. of, and instead of hearing that music as annoying as a baby's cry might be, his moan is actually beautiful. It's a beautiful resonant chant, 
which summons mm-hmm. the rocks that are are his friends to him. Yeah. Um, it, right. it is it is reframing that moment where you're holding your screaming baby and you're like, mm-hmm. all I can hear is the, the cacophony of the sound. And what watching Ludo lets you go, actually, there's something beautiful happening here. Right. Even if it doesn't sound beautiful to me. Right. And so when, when there's your my parenting kids lesson, Brent. Yeah. Well, yeah. When my <laughs> kids were crying, when my kids were crying and I would hold them and I'd be like, and they would hang on to me with all their might, you know, I would be, I'm going to cry talking about this. I would say, I would cry with them and be like, yep, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. And so that's the difference, I think. I think that's what she's learning. So she doesn't know how to soothe. She's learning. She doesn't know how to she soothe. She doesn't know how to soothe. Yeah, she knows how to soothe herself. And the rate how she does that is is by telling herself stories and living in a fantasy world, but she doesn't know how to soothe others. And so when Ludo gets cut down, she's like, Are you hurt? Are you let me take care of you? She's she's learning that those skills that are ultimately going to serve her best when she's taking care of her brother down the road. So and because she's been scared to death, right? So um, now she knows how to be a little more, a little more altruistic, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Sir Didymus. Sir oh come on! Did he, I love Sir Didymus. Sir Didymus Sir has Didymus that, fraggle, great fun that fraggle rock energy. Uh, yes, well, I was going to say the same thing. He's yeah. the most muppetiest of all the mm-hmm. characters that we meet, except for maybe the goblins. He might be a little Gonzo in there, maybe. Well, I mean, certainly yeah, I, voiced I, I by the same that, yeah. by the same. Oh, there it is. Yep, that's why. Yeah, um, Dave goals. But uh, I I will throw out that. Uh, so first of all, uh, Sir Didymus. I don't know if you saw it, but you're looking through Sarah's room. There is actually a Disney reference in there, and the Disney reference is to the animated Robin Hood character. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so this scene right here is actually a recreation. He's on a bridge. It's uh, Robin. Yeah. It's Robin Hood who's little and skilled, and then there's like this big guy who's actually maybe little on the like like Ludo sort of in the little John sort of way. She's recreating Robin Hood with this. Are you sure this isn't just Terry Go- Jones recreating the Black Knight scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail? See, that's what it felt like to me. <laughs> no, this is this is Robin Hood and Little John. What li- Little John historically? He's on this bridge. He's like, I guard this bridge. And Robin Hood's like, mm-hmm. that's what you do. He's like, till I'm beaten in combat. You know, this is, and it, it forms this big friendship. And so we've sort of reversed Robin Hood and Little John here because Ludo, Ludo is there. Uh, but like mm-hmm. she's retelling her stories um, and she's, mm-hmm. she's putting a little twist on them. Um, at the same time, like Sir Didymus is the smallest of all of them, but he's also the bravest of all of them. Mm-hmm. And like, like uh, he needs to be fearless he, but part of that is, is he actually really afraid deep down and he's just overcompensating for what he's afraid of? He, he wants to be that way, doesn't it? He wants to be fearsome. There's, there's so much, there's so much in this about what does it mean to be brave? And the other part of this is how does Sarah defeat him with the logic of children? She says, he goes, I have taken a vow. None may pass this bridge without my permission. And she goes, well, then can I have your permission? And he goes, mm, <laughs> yes. And like, like there's, there's, yeah. it's so, right. it's so charming. My one complaint is Sir Didymus doesn't get, he's with them and he's providing comic relief for the rest of that journey. He doesn't get to do much for the rest of the He movie. has his little fight with the goblins on the little like 
velociraptor, little dinosaur thing. Yes. He has that moment, but that's about it. But yeah, I think you're right in that Didymus is like the epitome of the Muppety side of this. Um, There are definitely moments throughout the film where like that kind of Jim Henson, you know, droll sense of humor comes in and stuff like the faces that tell them they're going the wrong way. And then he's just like, oh, please, can I say it? I haven't said it in years. And I'm like, all right, fine. And then he says it. Yes. And he's like, thank you so much. And he's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. Like, Which also those... has some Terry Jones energy to no, it. No, absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. like, I think, yeah, I think that those, those were definitely some of my favorite moments. And Didymus like really epitomizes those kind, that kind of humor. That's when the goblins prevalent. all go, <gasps> Like, yes like yeah deaf. you know that yeah that and those are the those are the moments that keep me watching because without mm-hmm. those moments i would be done i would be so i'm glad those are in there uh merlin the dog is well, also yeah, is it ambrosius right? the or dog is it ambrosius the dog i yeah. think it's the same dog, dog. it is the same dog yeah it's the yeah. it's the same dog although sarah doesn't recognize him as her right. dog in the because because yeah. again dream logic but she's cast her right. dog as sir didymus's steed mm-hmm. of course of yeah. course also the same kind of dog from peter pan mm-hmm. and that yeah. like old classic Nana. animation sure. i saw sure. the reference there too i thought that was neat yeah i'm and toto right toto right although this mm-hmm. dog is is a bit more cowardly than than those other, <laughs> yeah than those other dogs slightly for slightly. sure yeah um, um I had a couple other characters I picked. And again, we're not going to cover all the characters that are in this movie, but a couple that I really liked. I liked the wise man. Uh, Frank he, Oz is the wise man. He's the hardest one for me to, to define. Uh, he gives her advice and I can't make heads or tails of this advice. It's sometimes mm-hmm. the way forward is the way backwards. Right. He says that. Mm-hmm. And. I mean, I, I know what that sentence means. I have no idea how that applies to anything that happens in the rest of the movie. And if you cut the sequence with the wise man in it, I don't know that you miss a step. No. Um, the puppet but, is interesting. It's a puppet it on a have, puppet. Mm-hmm. But it does have some sort of Yoda-ish, like, catap- you know, Yoda energy, because it's Frank Oz. But it also has some caterpillar energy. It does. From Alice in Wonderland, yeah. like, who are you kind of thing. So, And I you like have the bird on his head, too, that, like, kind of refutes everything he says. Right. And he's just like, yes, this is the way to do it. And the bird's like, don't listen to him. He's an idiot. You right. know, kind of thing. That duality. Right. Yeah. I, Which is I, really interesting. But of all the characters, this is the one where, like, if you ask me, what's he doing here? Couldn't tell you. It feels like he has a story, right? Right, right. What's his story? Don't know. I don't, don't know. know. I want to know. It feels like he's in. That's important. the spinoff, Larry. The spinoff is there how he and he found his his bird hat. But it does. It look. Is this a banjo kazooie prequel? I don't know. But, <laughs> that's, but, that's hilarious. But I do. I do feel like he feels so important when he's on the screen. I almost yeah. want to be like, was the labyrinth his, and then the Goblin King took it over. Uh, right. Is he Odin in ex- exile? What What is his story? I have so many questions about him. No answers. Nothing. None of them get answered. And I can't tell you what his wisdom does for Sarah. Could not. 
So, but he's there for the dance party at the end, so clearly he is. he's important to her. Well, the yeah. fire eyes are there, and they tried to take her head off. I mean, you know, everybody got a ticket to this party. Did, did they try to take her head off, or did they try to teach her a lesson about being loosey-goosey and a little less tight? Um, I, so. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think so. Chill, they chilly down is what they do. But <laughs> That's hilarious. I love the junk lady, uh, Karen Carroll's yes. performance. I That whole scene for me... Super is so great because we think we're back in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're not back in Kansas. We're actually, and she's going through her room going, oh, this is important. This is important. In a way, foils Sarah because when Sarah starts at the beginning, she starts looking for her bear Lancelot, right? Mm-hmm. She accuses Toby of taking him. Like all the things that she's angry about, the junk lady's like, oh, what's this? What's this? What's this? Like picking apart what she finds important in her yes. life. It's just, it's just junk. It's just junk in a junkyard. All these things. All these, none of these things really matter. And then as it turns out, no, she's not back in her room. The wall disintegrates and there it, we are again. That so. moment is the creepiest moment for me. When, when she opens Agreed. the door again and she's still in the junk pile. That's yeah. great. But of course, uh, I mean, my feeling is all of those, she's not the only, the, the junk lady is not the only junk lady in the trash area. There are other people there also yeah, with I noticed these that. giant mounds. And she starts to create this giant mound on Sarah. Mm-hmm. She's like, you need this, you need this. She's, it's, it's the idea of all of these trappings of childhood. Like mm-hmm. if you hold on to them too tightly, they make you smaller, not, not bigger. Um, like, like, like there is, they encumber you, right? Right. They, they keep you from really loving and, and they keep you from what matters. Right. Clearly what is not important is that Toby has gotten Lancelot away from, from Sarah, which Mm -hmm. for her in that first scene had been her, like, that's the line. You took my teddy bear. Uh, and of course that's not important at all. It's not important at all. Um, I, that she's she I, I want to know more about her. She's also at the dance party. Mm-hmm. Um, but she she's she's an interesting I, I see her as more villainous than in some ways than even even the Goblin King is because yeah. because she's pretending to be a friend. Uh, she's pretending to be grandmotherly, but actually it's all a trap. Yeah. Mm. Okay, it's time for Game Time with Larry. Ooh, Game Time with Larry. It's an exciting new segment. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah, we've been doing it for a while now. We've been bringing on, uh, sometimes when we don't want to pitch. (laughs) Andy Andy will call me up about an hour before this and say, let's play a game. And I'll be like, what did you have in mind? And she goes, I don't know. And how about, uh, how, about day, how about the day before? Oh, it was the day before. It was. I don't know. That's before. your job. Your job is to come up with the game. Let's play a game. So you have this, a PhD in this, Larry. I expect good things. Okay. So, so this game is a variation <laughs> of Love, Marry, Kill. Uh, yeah. But instead, this this game is called Visit, Move, Flee. And I'm going to list to you some several nonsense realms. We're going to take Labyrinth out of this. Uh, and I'm going to okay. ask you guys, uh, we'll, we'll go around, we'll do one round of visit, one round of move, one round of flight. So, awesome. Uh, visit, it, as opposed to move, visit is, I want to go to this fairyland once. I want to go there, I want to say I've mm-hmm. been there, but I definitely want to come back. Whereas move is, this is where I'm going. 
Okay. I'm going there right. forever. Okay. So, so here are your options for visit, move, flee. And we'll go around, we'll do visit, we'll go around, we'll do move, then we'll go around, we'll do flee. So I've, okay. I've listed some nonsense realms here. There is Wonderland, Oz, Fantastica, which is the land from the never-ending story, Narnia, which is from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Isle of the Wild Things, mm. the Kingdom of Wisdom, which is from the Phantom Tollbooth series, and Neverland, which is from uh, Peter Pan. And we are going to start off by saying, as tourists, if I could visit one of these realms, but come back, I would like to visit what? You want me to read those mm. options again? or yeah, yeah, read them one more time okay. for us and for the listener. For us and the listener. And listeners, let us know what you would choose. Come to our, yes, come to absolutely. our, come to our page Already. and let us know. Yeah. Uh, so the choices are Wonderland, Oz, mm -hmm. Fantastica from The NeverEnding Story, Narnia from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Kingdom of Wisdom, which is from The Phantom Tollbooth, and mm -hmm. Neverland which is from Peter Pan. And right. I'll start with my visit as you guys get yours. Uh, okay. My visit is probably going to be Wonderland. I've always wanted to go. I love Alice in Wonderland. I love all of the nonsense. I want to eat things and get big and drink things and get small. I want to see if I can do a better job than Alice does in Wonderland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't want to live there because a lot of people are mean. Uh, like they're not it's a queen trying to cut people's heads off. Too. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she's not great, but even like the people at the tea party aren't great. Uh, like, like everyone's pretty nasty. So, like, I want to see how I do there, sort of like in a survivor kind of way. But I mm -hmm. definitely don't want to live in Wonderland. Okay. Okay. What about you guys? Where I, would you visit? I think I want to visit Narnia. Ooh, why? Uh, for for similar reasons, I think that there's a whole, you know, good versus evil thing going on. I want to see. I've always wanted to see the White Witch up close. You want Turkish delight? That's I, what well, you I want. I do not want Tur. No, I I no. do not want Turkish. Okay, delight. fair it's, enough. It's terrible. Have you ever had it? It's no, I've never had it. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely overhyped. I remember we. <laughs> Yeah, we went to England. The kids were like, Turkish delight. We all took a bite and went, why would he sell them? C.S. <laughs> Lewis was in the pockets of Big Toffee, I guess. So, <laughs> I think so. I think so. Um, yeah. So, I, but I think um, I really like like the beavers a lot. Yeah, so and I like thinking about how cozy their life yeah. is. And um, I've always loved the idea of going into my closet and pushing the clothes back and being you know, feeling the snow crunching beneath my feet. So oh, that's fun. I'm going to, I'm going to go with Narnia. Brett. Um, I think my visit is also Wonderland. Um, do not want to stay there, but I think it would be a really fun time. Everything with the Cheshire cat, the caterpillar, the tea party, there's just some wild stuff there. Like you were kind of saying, Larry, uh, very surreal, the weirdness of the growing and the shrinking and all that stuff. Um, it would just be a really, really fun day, but I do not want to stay there. Okay. So maybe we go back round the way we came. Uh, Brett, are you prepared to say where you would move to? You have to move to one of these places. You have to live at one I of these places. So. You can take your loved ones with you. That's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, but where would you move? I think, um, 
I think I would move to Narnia because, as we all know, um, the only actual humans in Narnia are royalty. So, at least according to the first movie, yeah. first book, you know, it's like you know. So if I'm there, like, hey, I I may be living son in the of world, Adam, you know, yeah, that's there right, yeah, hanging out with Aslan and the beavers are wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you gotta see a clear of that white witch lady, but um, you know, other than that, I think think it'd be pretty cool, pretty cool. Andy, where would, where would you move to? I would move to Neverland in a heartbeat. Oh, why would <laughs> you would. move to Neverland? Because there's so many good things there. And like, there's a constant war, but nobody ever really wins or loses. It's just kind of a <laughs> fun game to play. And, um, you know, I I always liked Peter Pan. He was always my, my guy. So. so as for me, yeah. I'm moving to Oz. Uh I'm, I'm taking uh, uh, what I actually want is for my whole house to be transported uh, to Oz <laughs> by a cyclone. So then we don't have to move my stuff. But once we're there, I mean, Oz is pretty great. It's pretty magical. Um, there are witches, but I know their secret. Uh, and just I'll bring a super soaker. I'm fine. Um, it, it feels like it has just the right amount of adventure for me. Mm-hmm. And because I read like all 14 of the Oz books, I know some. I know that you only age in Oz when you want to age. Um, everybody oh, in true. Oz actually gets to to live forever. The babies stay babies till they want to be older. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's like it's kind of perfect. And there's a lot of fun touristy sites to go to. Uh, I think I think Oz would be a hoot for me. I mean, there's a, there's like a great place. There's like a great spa there to get shined up. Oh, for sure. <laughs> get your hair cut. You know, it's good. Oh, but I'm going, <laughs> to, I'm going to I'm going to book Oz. I'm not going to movie Oz. I don't want to have to sing all the time. <laughs> I like, you movie know, Oz, though. so right, then we right. get to flee. And Andy, I'm going to let you go first on this one. Which oh one would goodness. you want to flee? I'm sorry, brother, but I'm going to have to flee Wonderland. <laughs> and why Wonderland? Because there are too many jump scares in that. Oh. <laughs> there are too many like, eat me. Oh, do this. Oh, I'm this size. This size. I do not. Listen, listen. Okay. <laughs> I want that in my life. And, you know, the Mad Hatter Tea Party makes me crazy. Yeah. Makes me crazy. Because, it's you know, you to. can't have any... Any kind of <laughs> sensical conversation with anyone, and that would make me. Um, that would you want to talk about defying logic? I I like for my conversations to have some basis, some grounding in logic, and I don't think there's anyone in Wonderland who I could talk to with any sort of Fair. sense of realism. There or yeah, all so, right. Uh, there it is, Brett. Where where would you flee? Um, well, I don't remember the name of it, but the the fantasy land from Neverending Story, Fantastica. Oh, Fantastica. I would flee Fantastica. the same one. Why? Why are you fleeing Fantastica? Because I cannot deal with the trauma of losing a Treyu again. <laughs> mm. I was actually gonna. I was actually gonna. <laughs> that's a good one. That the, see, and that's not the thing that I'm most afraid of in Neverland. I did not in Fantastica. I yes, the bog, the bog of sorrow is very, very sad. Too sad. Oh, that's Too one of the saddest sad. movies in cinema history. But for me, the thing I'm fleeing in Fantastica is the nothing. 
Um, mm. that, that's scary. That's the, scary. The existential dread that comes from the nothing. The idea that mm-hmm. like it's slowly getting bigger and it's slowly coming closer. And when you get near it, you feel a gravitational pull towards to jump into the nothing. No, thank you. No, thank you. Super soaker <laughs> and witches. I am not getting anywhere oh near. Fantastic. And that is our game. Visit move. Play. I like that. I Good. that is a great game. And I'm I thank you for indulging me and for so that I don't have to pitch. <laughs> Fair, enough. Fair enough. Oh, this is awesome. Thank Brett. I mean, we really at this point, you deserve some sort of like jacket for being a five timer. We really oh, appreciate your I mean, your I, thoughts. And, uh, and and since this is an audio medium, Brett, let me present yes. you with my jewel encrusted jacket. Oh, look, wow. look how look it that. shines. The craftsmanship. This is incredible. I made it I, myself. No idea. I you did. It myself. Yeah, uh, it's impressive. Uh, yes, I'm gonna wear it right now. Oh, I got your measurements exactly fit. right. You look. It lo- oh, it fits like a dream. You look great. You look oh, great. The emperor you. has no clothes. Thank okay. <laughs> Brett, as always, thank you so much for being here. Thank you we for really, having really me. It's always it. a blast coming back. So I just Aww. appreciate you guys always being willing to put up with me. <laughs> no, you bring a lot to this podcast. We really appreciate it. And friends, if you like what you're hearing, will you do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney or classic movie fan? If you give us a five-star rating review, we'd be so pleased. So very Check pleased. Out our- very yes. pleased and check out our website once upon a disney podcast.com for more great episodes you can also check out our once upon a disney facebook page or drop us a line in our mailbag at once upon a disney podcast at gmail.com so until next time friends see you real soon and if you need us 